This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. I always wanted to have that fairy tale life, and I made it for myself where I get to go around the world and when I encounter good food and amazing people who inspire me, that is a part of my bread and butter work. Leiti Sue is a joy to know and a blast to spend time with. A contributor to Forbes Woman, Leiti lives at the intersection of food and travel and believes in the power of storytelling. Originally from Taiwan, she shares a poignant memory about beef noodle soup, her mother's death, and what it means to fight for yourself. She is the ultimate connector of people, recipes, chefs, and their stories, and believes that everyone has their own brand of cool that's scalable. Her own very cool company, Journey, makes travel more magical than it has ever been before. Leiti is an ambassador of millennial style, risk-taking, and verve. This is her story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. It is such a pleasure to have you here, Leti Sue. And I'm going to spell that. So it's L-E-I-T-I-H-S-U. Thank you. <laughs> it's delightful never... to be here. Oh, thank you. We, we've never met, but I was so excited to have you with me today. You ooze cool and sophistication. Thank you. <laughs> and I know that your life really intersects between travel and food. So I have a big question for you. Which one? is your heart? And which one is your soul? Oh, wow. Heart and soul? Travel, food. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Okay, well, this is, there's, ah, that's like the most juicy question I've gotten. I've gotten a lot of questions. And it makes it more fun that we haven't met each other because this is going to be filled with surprises. Just stay tuned. Okay, so to me, heart is the simplest, the most core of a person, of my person, I'm very heart-led. That's what makes me successful and powerful, but also what gets me in trouble, right? <laughs> so for me, the food is the heart because it's just what I started out with. It's the absolute, just my DNA, like what I, I've been eating since age zero. And soul is something that is more ethereal and less tangible, less mm -hmm. visceral, like putting food into my mouth. And for me, that's travel. Because for me, the soul has this like hard to grab aspect of it. And again, that is travel because even though travel is the best when you feel like you're actually touching, smelling, feeling something, walking down a dark, narrow alleyway to like a <laughs> teeny weeny speakeasy with like two or three seats and the person made something for you just for you and mm. it's house brewed and you know fermented and distilled you know that kind of travel experience where it's very very um, tactile still though I'm led to places that I have an imagination about mm. 
And so if I have a fantasy about a destination, that's what gets me extra excited to land there. And so actually, that's where the magic of travel comes in is when you can have a whole entire like fairy tale about a place and then finally get to go there and then create your own fairy tale about that place. Mm, that's so beautiful. So heart is food a little more tangible, mm -hmm. and travel is soul and a little more imaginary. But I think we need to let everyone know who you are. And I'm so sorry for giving you this very tough question to begin with. No, I love it. You are a connector, an influencer. You have a new trendy approach to travel. It's a very personalized, boutique-y travel business, and mm -hmm. we definitely want to hear more about that. I understand, though, that there is not a chef in the world who isn't eager to cook for you. Mm. So we definitely want to hear about that. Goodness. Here you know everybody. Um, so, Leite, let's go back to your childhood. Very often, this is the way the show starts. It's kind of past, present, future. So where were you born? I was born in Taipei, Taiwan. And where did you live? Who was in your kitchen? I went to the United States when I was two years old, grew up in Southern California in a suburb of Los Angeles. I was an only child up until age five. So my nuclear family was the first to come to the States. A lot of our relatives still, they stayed in Taiwan. So I had a, a lonely childhood. I didn't have like a lot of relative kids to play with. Yeah. So I had a lot of time to myself to imagine and to dream and to poke some snails and ride my bicycle around <laughs> the neighborhood and spin yarn out of cotton balls. Mm. You know, I loved going to the arts and crafts store. I loved being in the nature section of the library to read about worms and butterflies and animals, both like present day and dinosaurs. Mm. So, yeah, I was kind of a like a bookwormy kid, and I wish that I could have like friends, like kid friends all the time to hang out with. Of course, you know, school, yeah, there were kids there, but we were kind of the front lines of coming here, my and, family. And what happened at five years old? Oh, did, so then my little sister sibling? was born. <laughs> and <laughs> then, then it was just that really go? annoying. <laughs> she would like... She would like bite, attack me, you know. She's like a small animal. She would like bite me, and then so basically my little sister existed. And she's wonderful now. I mean, I, I love you know. It's very important to have, I think, if you can, two kids because then they can keep each other company while you slowly go crazy in old age. So, do you remember much of living in Taipei when you were two? Do two-year-olds have much of a memory? I don't remember the zero to two years old part. I did stay with my grandparents while my mom came with my dad to finish up his graduate degree in Louisiana. He was studying computer science, a master's in in computer engineering. And I did go back to Taiwan every five years or so mm -hmm. as a kid. And I remember how delicious the street food was and how how much fun I had just being taken around by my relatives to go just eat everything. And it was only up until recently in my adult life that I had the opportunity to do a campaign for Taiwan Tourism Board. And we went back there with influencer friends of mine and with Andrew Zimmern of Travel Channel, who's a big chef and TV host. Leti, I used to babysit for him. 
I cannot. <laughs> I, I worked for his dad, but wait, that's another I can't story. Even, wait, I, my mind is <laughs> my mind is just exploding right now. I don't understand. Also, what? Yeah, it's true. You do not look like you could possibly babysit for him. Were you guys like the same age? No, I was older. But but this is about you. Okay, but this is just like, can I just... <laughs> I, I just had to... I couldn't let that go. This is too good. So we went back to Taiwan. I was able to R&D Taiwan and really realize that I was right. Like I had good taste back then. Where I come from is effing delicious. And it's not a cuisine I know very much about. And even though I've traveled, I've never been there. So I'm definitely going to want some specifics. Yeah. So when you grew up in Southern California, when you were very young, was your mother in the, in the kitchen? Do you have any vivid food memories or smells or tastes? Did she cook American food? Was it yes. food of her mother and her grandmother? So, What do you remember? So my mother was the one who cooked. And it's funny, now my father cooks. My mother passed away over the summer. That's part of the story this of, mm. of my food. I grew up this little Asian kid in the suburbs of Southern California, which meant that getting Papa John's delivered or the, the TV dinners with like the the egg noodles and the stroganoff and like all the meatloaf and frozen peas, like all those TV dinners with all the things in them that my mom <laughs> didn't cook. Those were so exotic. That was fine dining to me. That was a little bento box. A little bento American, box. American style. Tasting menu, really, of things. Mm, because Degustation. Right. I mean, I was just like having a ball eating that stuff and it was super salty and like not really good for you. And also, frankly, pricey for an immigrant family at that time, like, you know, to pay even like three dollars or five dollars for like a little thing. I mean, it's ridiculous to think about that now, given what I've had the opportunity to experience in my lifetime so far. So all this stuff was totally exotic. I loved it when my mom would cook a spaghetti just with the noodles, the dry noodles and the the sauce from a can and she would throw in like Italian sausage and cut up some veggies like peppers and stuff so it was not at all authentic like I call this like <laughs> Asian mom pasta. So so she would make that and that would be really exciting to me. She would also cook all of the Taiwanese Chinese dishes. What so, are some of the classic dishes in, of Taiwan? I don't really know. So I think first of all the table needs to have certain elements to it mm. it's almost like a, a set set of dishes a like set, a little performance a little set, theater set, set. so mm -hmm. you would definitely have a soup so that's to end the meal so i thought it was really interesting how in western cuisine you would start with a soup like that's an appetizer to us that's like the end it rounds it out it makes sense are right? you like so to swathe your stomach in this moisture and wetness mm. i love moist food it's kind of an <laughs> awkward word but it's a very important one. It's an important yeah. word, awkward. People are uncomfortable with the word, but it makes food delicious. Water content in my food. So every <laughs> every meal would have a vegetable, like mm. a sautéed greens. It would have a meat-ish for dish. It would have maybe a whole fish. So it would have mm. a meat, a fish, which are different like food groups right. in, like a, on a Chinese table, a vegetable, the rice, and then maybe something else. But really like three dishes, the rice. All at once. And the soup. Except yeah. for the soup. All, all at once. And the soup would be on the stove the way my mom did it. Wow. So that would be like a typical set of dishes. The special occasion would be like a Japanese curry over rice. So she'd get those like blocks from the boxes, the ready-to-go curries, and put chicken and potatoes and carrots and always a squeeze of lemon like lemon goes a long mm. way with that yellow turmeric based Japanese curry mm -hmm. and that's 
you know, still to this day, one of my favorite dishes that my sister also enjoys. And my sister cooked this Japanese curry dish for my mom when she was very ill before she passed away. I think Mm -hmm. that was the last thing that my sister might have cooked for my mom. So that would be like a not special occasion dish, but that would be like, you know, ooh, we're having curry tonight because curry it would with a squeeze it, of lemon. Right. It would be different from the like everyday, you know, set of dishes on the table, right. which was also um, like it's amazing. Now when I go home, I have that. It's so lightweight and subtle and just so clean and homemade tasting. I think I got to the point in doing my work and being in my industry where as much as I still adore the glamour and the theater and the adventure and the tastes of experiencing a restaurant, like when I go home and my dad's cooking some of the same things that his mom cooked and my mom cooked, Mm. I'm like, okay, this is where it's at. The idea of cooking a last meal for someone is so vivid. Oh, yeah. It's really touching my heart is you just touched your heart. Um, what are some of the smells of this food? I'm, I'm getting color. Ooh. And you talked about a little bit about theater. And this is like a little bit like a stage set and very different from an American way of eating. So there's some this beautiful ritual. Yes. And I did wonder what Americans ate. I, I really, as a kid, was like, do they eat pizza every day? Like, do Ameri- white kids, do they eat Yeah, a lot of them do, right? <laughs> and casserole? Cause, and I was intrigued by casserole. Like, casserole, when it's not good, can be really not good. But I suppose it could just be good because it's like this mushy, moist, yummy thing. So anyway. So the smells, some of the, uh, smells, the smells of the food. So, Chinese food is very fragrant. So my mom would pack me lunch and I might have steamed dumplings in my container. And because I was already an eater and like also probably bratty because I didn't care what people thought, I would open up my lunchbox that had the like steamed dumplings and steamed dumplings have a particular aroma. It's not a good aroma. It smells kind of like old Ooh. socks. Wow. Like some people like that. Yeah. It's very, it's <laughs> funky. It's weird. It's like the combination of the meat inside of the dumplings and all of the the chives, the green chives in there, yes. or just the vegetables have a spunk to them. Mm. So I would just stink up my whole math class because I would open <laughs> up my lunchbox early because I got hungry early. And I'm a very disciplined person, but when it comes to food and just going for it and being hungry and really relishing it, off camera, on camera, it's like what I do. And I think back to when I was a kid in math class and I was so bored by math. I was like a little Asian kid who sucked at math. Well, I was okay at it, but I just hated it. And so I would just distract myself by eating some dumplings. So the aromas are many different aromas. Mm-hmm. We are not afraid of funky and smelly. If you're a Taiwanese kid, you know, we have the legendary stinky tofu. So funk, like a good French cheese. I love a pois. Like I thought it was really unfair that other cultures get to have smelly stuff. But when Koreans have their kimchi and when Taiwanese people have all their funky stuff, why is it that like fine wine gets to be fermented, but we don't get to have our own cultural funk? Yeah, Americans are uncomfortable with smells. That's that's for sure. I know. I love the same cheese you love, but I think it's a poiss. Yes? Is is this... I think pronounce the S. Is this... Do you speak French? Un petit peu. Uh, and I do not speak <laughs> French, so I have to repeat after you. Epoise? Yes, I believe. Um, so that's, that, is, that is a favorite ooey-gooey cheese. But So a fragrance, for instance, that would make me think of home is anything that smells umami. So mm. I, I believe you can smell that, that particular smell of just... It's very hard to describe it in words and, yeah. and, and in English, but it is very recognizable. Right. But, you know, it's a word that just really became part of the American vocabulary, I would say, in the last 15 to 20 years. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Now everyone does seem to know it is kind of the fifth taste, but it was really something new for Americans. And you grew up with it. It's savory. It's alluring. And I don't think technically it has to do with the smell of sautéing garlic in the beginnings of a meal, but there's some kind of connection because then there's that like, there are some chemical reactions that cause the umami, whether it's fermentation mm-hmm. or a caramelization or... Well, it's a glutamate and it's right. an amino acid that actually exists in nature. And so it is un, you know, released by all different kinds of combinations. All different kinds of, right, when yes. cooking happens. So one example of a very simple and loving dish is mm. I remember my mom would make me rice rice porridge to congee. Mm. So that can be a very just like almost nearly tasteless dish in that it's just rice boiled in water. And, but you can add different things to it. And so, you know, one way to add minerals and nutrients into this dish is to put little tiny baby fish that when cooked look like little white slivers. Yes. And like even something like that being cooked, you know, you can smell the sea and you could mm. like the little baby fish it gives off this delicious savoriness of the ocean. And those are the kinds of things I had growing up, which, by the way, now I realize as I collaborate with chefs, with all of my ideas, these flavors and smells are so utilizable and impartable to the world of fine dining. So I love the high lowness of like Mm. what's resonating with diners today and eaters. Well, I definitely want to hear about that. And kanji is a very interesting example of that, right? Because it's a pretty, if, if we're talking about high-low, right, it's a bowl of bo- boiled rice. Yeah. Uh, but depending on what is added and the way it's presented mm-hmm. and the way it's thought about, it becomes something very sophisticated. And the reason I really wanted to ask you all of this is because I really believe all of these wonderful words you're using and flavors and memories will help us really understand what you do and how you got to do it. And more. More surprises. That's my French. (laughs) Here's a cooking tip to share. This one from my guest, Leti Sue. One dish I think is so simple that's a friend of mine who has a lot of dietary restrictions was delighted to learn about is a clam and ginger broth so just clams and ginger and it's just incredibly simple and it's so sweet and it tastes of the sea and it's something that nearly everyone can eat it's one of those things that i was reminded that is one of the soups that's just so easy and it's like a thing that moms make and it's as simple as can be you de-sediment the clams you put the clams in the ginger and you boil it for not too long because the clams cook quickly and it's just this super delicate aromatic soothing gingery broth and that's the beauty of homemade chinese food is it doesn't have to be overwrought complicated doesn't have to be you know making a consomme and i mean you can do that but you don't have to you can do it just like the mom way and it's still delicious with really good ingredients and just a few ingredients not a whole long shopping list either Give it a try and pass it along. Leiti Sue, what do you actually do? How do you describe yourself? Someone asked me just the other day, if I had one word, what would it be? I have not figured it out yet. I think it's easier for some people and less easy for others. But you are a very fanciful... Um, fanciful. 
pixie character. And uh, I know you're a contributor to Forbes Woman. Mm -hmm. You had your own radio show for a long time. Uh, You have this very impressive travel business, but you are more than any of that. So I think that's kind of what I want to get to. Who are you and how do we get to be you? What's become very clear to me, and this is partly due to a magical summer I've had, and I will share with you the dish that I love the most that my mom cooked, and it's helped me to realize who the heck I'm supposed to be. Mm, Who I am. Food can do that. Is I'm a storyteller and a connector, and have my own food story that has everything to do with, you know, culture is a word that's thrown around, but what I really realized this summer is that. The food that I grew up with, the food that you grew up with, it doesn't matter if you're Asian or not, if you have some ethnicity that people find different. Truly, like, if you ask anyone, what did you have for school lunch? And that's why I love your podcast so much, is you ask anyone and it will tell you something about their culture, even if they grew up like white as Wonder Bread or white as Ed Sheeran. (laughs) Is that okay for me to say? Um, Yes. So over the summer, I had an uncanny day that was I didn't realize it was possible to be sad and overjoyed at the same time Mm. so my mother had been dealing with stage four non-smoking lung cancer for five years and over the summer she was placed into hospice care so that was a transition and the transition happened faster than we expected although we didn't necessarily have you know a whole lot of expectations we were just being there for her and then One morning, I was in Utah at Summit Powder Mountain at this conference called Summit Series, which is this gathering of people who are builders and creators and entrepreneurs and leaders and change makers. And those are all fluffy words, but just a really good community. And I was slated to cook my mom's Taiwanese beef noodle soup for 120 people that evening up Hmm. on the mountain this summer. And that morning that the dinner was going to happen, and by the way, Note, it was a noodle soup dance party that I did. <laughs> what I is brought that? on board Matt FX, who's this DJ, the curator of all of the music for the hit show, Cultural Phenomenon, Broad City. So we combined noodle soup and dance, two of my absolutely favorite things, into my dream party. So we were going to do this thing. So that morning, I get a phone call from my sister. And she says, I think mom passed away in her sleep. Mm. And it was like the word, I think, I remember that, that Mm. she said, I think, and it was so surreal. It was like, Mm. like all of a sudden someone can exist and then fail to exist, not fail, but not exist. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first activity of the day, thankfully was a sound meditation, which was really the perfect thing. Like I will, you know, weep when I'm not, haven't just found out that my mother has passed away, but laid down, just let myself feel the feelings. And then logistical mode called my sister said, Hey, is there a rush? Do I need to come home immediately. My, my family is in LA area. No, there's not a rush. You know, mm-hmm. if, even if you came back, her body's being transferred in four hours. So it's not like, you know, it's not like the funeral's happening tonight. Mm-hmm. So do your thing. And I'm like, okay, well, I am going to do my thing because Tonight, I'm going to cook her Taiwanese beef noodle soup that I love so much. It's extraordinary. Because I had started doing this pop-up called Hashtag Sue Soup, H-S-U-S-O-U-P, my last name, and then soup. 
five years ago when she first was diagnosed, because a few months before she learned her diagnosis, I had put into a Google document the place where all random good-ish ideas go to sit. I put into my Google Doc the idea to have the, my dream hole-in-the-wall restaurant. I wasn't trying to open a restaurant. Opening restaurants is like definitely a money-losing proposition, just like making wine is. I mean, I joke, <laughs> but you know, I wasn't trying to have a restaurant. But I wrote into this Google Doc this idea for a restaurant about this dish that I love so much because I realized that we all – like the first go-to thought about noodle soup is ramen, but that was that's literally one slice of all of the noodle soup out there. That's like having one color red crayon out of a whole box of possible 72 or like 100-something crayons. Like that's literally what ramen is. And I was so angry about this cultural appropriation not done right. Rather than cultural appreciation, people were about one thing. So when my mom was diagnosed... The one way that I knew how to express myself or to even make sense of my family and my mom and me is just to start cooking this thing. Wow. So I would only cook it like a few times a year. It wasn't like a you know weekly thing. So that morning I learned my mom passed away. That night was the noodle soup dance party. I went into the mm. kitchen, mm. worked with – so all these people had all these cultures. Um, Matt FX is Jewish, Chinese – raised in New York City, the chef Haru Kishi of Summit. He's Japanese French. I dove into the kitchen with him, took the broth that was made parao pho style, and then we combined it together. To It was like like water for chocolate, kind of mystical oh, vibes yes. where we're swirling around the kitchen. We're mm. perfecting the soup. We're like tasting it and tasting it. And we make two versions, one with the doubanjang, the uh, fermented bean paste, mm -hmm. uh, which does have wheat in it, and a gluten-free version where we devise something with gochujang and miso for those gluten-free people. And wow. I could sense that as the soup was getting to be more and more punchy and powerful and truly balanced, that he was coming alive. And then I was standing there, like hunched over the commercial kitchen counter and tasting the soup and like having a whole like small bowl of it before diving into the evening. And then I got the go ahead to to tell people about this dish. And I told people about my mom and that she had just passed away, which was all very surreal. It was a mm. rainy day. Hmm. and or about to rain like really it was it could have just opened up the skies could have just poured on us instead the sun came out right during magic hour so it mm. felt like a special kind of heaven with long white tables and and then i said hey here's what happened yesterday night my mom's hospice nurse we we had a call to debrief about the day it was a painful day my mom was in in a lot of discomfort and he said to me that if your mom could just eat and drink on her own, she's going to feel so much better. And I realized even more deeply something I had started to learn throughout her illness, which is to be hungry is a privilege because mm. when you're not well, you're not hungry. Right. And then to be able to satiate that hunger with the bounty before us is even more of a privilege. Wow. So I was like, everyone, let's create and build and connect and dance and eat and drink and make out and <laughs> make friends like there is no tomorrow. Let's do this in celebration of my mom because it's all that I know what to do right now. Mm. And people came up to me afterwards and said, we love what you said. More of this, more of you. One man said, pardon me venturing this, but, you know, I know you're you're having a tough day, but Maybe this is the first time your mom was able to be present at one of your gatherings. And I was like, 
yeah, it's true. Cause she, she, and then it just, I, I was like, thank you, mom, because it was such a gift that day made me realize that like, this is what I'm meant to do. I don't think I would have given myself the time and the space to really lean into what this all really meant to me. Like sometimes we get up there and we tell a whole bunch of people something and we do it nonchalantly. We do it like we speak quickly and we try not to waste anyone's time. But because I had to do it right and because it was just too like surreal and uncanny and synchronistic, the timing that my mom did, I'm like, thank you, mom. So I really took the time with the noodle soup and my story. This is so powerful, so beautiful, and is the power of food. And when we come back, Leiti, we're going to hear more about you and what you do and why this particular summer was so meaningful and so powerful, even though you've already accomplished a great deal. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold. And check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosangold.com. Clearly, there's a lot of magic in your life and a lot of very special organic things that Mm -hmm. happen. But can you give us a sense of exactly what you do? Yes. And what a day in the life of Lady Sue is like? A day in my life is comprised of connecting with people who are doing things who are inspiring. They might be experts for Journey, my travel planning company. They're often chefs and restaurateurs and people in our business. So I'm talking to people. I'm finding out about what's top of mind for them. I'm telling their stories, whether just by word of mouth like this or or by writing about them or interviewing them on camera. So connecting people and storytelling. So it's meetings. It's with, with my laptop. I actually get very little time with my laptop. For me, it's actually, it's, it's, it's a bit of a respite because as much as I seem like a a complete extrovert, I'm quite introverted. When I'm here with people though, I'm very on, I'm always on, not in a way that's inauthentic, but just because I'm excited. So I show up is a lot of what I do. Very alive you are. So what I do is I write for some publications. I have advised big brands and startups. All of this flowed into my company, Journey, which is a travel planning service. It's a modern, personalized travel planning service. I believe you used the word boutique earlier. I would say it feels boutique, and you're always working with a person, but it Journey is inclusive, like it's $25 or $50 a day of your trip, depending on if you want bookings and reservations or not. So $25 without just that transparent flat fee each day of your trip you want planned for you to get your trip planned to your tastes and preferences and budget. And, and that you can it, do that any place in the world, or do you specialize in certain areas or cultures or cuisines? We have 90-some destinations around the world. Well, if where you want to go is somewhere that needs to be more customized, that might be a different fee, but we would talk about it. But we cover most everywhere, like you know, Mexico City, Tokyo, Kyoto, Osaka, Milan, Paris, Lisbon. 
Cape Town. Like I'm throwing out, you know, Taipei, Singapore. So we cover all of these places. The places we cover came from demand from our travelers, and we grew in a really thoughtful, sustainable way. So we started mm. out with five destinations, and then we went on to ten destinations, and then. Within that, you see the the growth conundrum we had because you have to service more places in order to be able to capture more of what people want, like right where they're going. But we started out with five, and then we grew it to ten, and we grew it to twenty, and then we grew it to fifty, and we grew it to over ninety. I'm very curious about the priorities that people have when they are taking these trips. What is the most important to them? Where they're staying, where they're eating? Is it cultures? Is it museums? I have a feeling food may really be topping the list, right? We're a universe now of people who are just so food obsessed. <laughs> or have you found something different? You know what's what's really intriguing? And I, I'm flattered you say I seem cool. But cool factor is something that is a topic of interest in my mind. I think about how do you scale cool? And I've spoken mm. about this topic. Mm. I could write a book about it. I probably will write a book about it, which is that the emperor has no clothes. People think, oh, cool. I must have what's cool, right? Everyone wants what's cool, but not everyone can have what's cool because that's inherently what's cool is like not everyone can have a piece of cool. Right. But the thing is, there are ways to scale cool. Cool can be going down that dark alleyway to that speakeasy that nobody knows about, do do do. And that kind of cool, that is actually what travelers are wanting is these these experiences that you can go home and you can have that, again, story to tell. You can land back in the office and tell all your coworkers about this one speakeasy bar. You must go, oh my gosh, when you're in Japan. So scaling cool is possible through, let's say, personalization. And that's what we do wonderfully at Journey. We are a travel planning service where you're always working with a human trip designer who's in-house. A trip designer. I like this. Right? Mm -hmm. And that trip designer is utilizing our technology, our platform, our database, our network, just everything that we are as Journey. That trip designer is leveraging the Journey tools and network to take care of you. So you're getting Bourdain level access and know-how. And I have to just use Bourdain as that shortcut way to talk about it. There's no other person that really fully approximates what I mean when I say this is what travelers want today is their own personalized cool, right? Because travels are demanding, you know, and before it would just be the man, you know, in a suit sitting at the front of the plane on a PC go to whatever lobby or bar to have some business meeting or some restaurant, just as long as it's good, don't really care, right? But now the changing face of the traveler is a woman who's of another age uh, range, more surprising, doesn't look all the same. Maybe he's wearing like a loud red outfit. Uh, <laughs> this is the new face of the traveler who has money to spend. I didn't want to use the word luxury, but I just want to make mm -hmm. it a little bit more broad. The traveler that's discerning, who cares about going to the lobby with the best martini in town. Why not have on Friday at 4.30 p.m. have a martini with your laptop and be able to truly leisure, like business and leisure your trip. So these days, travelers are wanting 
dietary options. Like everyone's got some dietary restriction. Breaks my heart. My parsley health doctor told me I'm gluten intolerant and allergic. I still eat it. But anyway, heartbreaking. Everyone's got something. Travelers are now traveling multi-generationally. Grandma's traveling with daughter and daughter's daughter. And then you're on a ladies trip with everyone you care about the most and everyone's got their own desires and needs and if you don't have a journey taking care of you it might turn into more fights than you need on a family vacation that's supposed to be fun and simple. Lady, it feels like such a tall order though and so detail oriented. Uh, it, is it can you always deliver? Because what this is really about is about really satisfying people's dreams, really, and almost the unimaginable. How does that work? Yes. So our trip design team, I I don't know how they do it. And I'm so grateful to them because in a way I built a company in order to fulfill the demand of what I get daily as me. Every day I get friends and friends of friends who are like, oh, I saw you posted about Japan. Like, what do you, you know, no, no, no. Or, you know, just the other day, uh, um, an editor at Esquire, he said, I'm going to Japan. What what restaurant do you recommend? I'm like, you know, if I send you one restaurant recommendation, not only are you going to have to reach out to get that reservation, you might not be able to get that reservation. That reservation is not available publicly. Also, what about everything else? Not just that one restaurant reservation. All the other ways that we can help delight and surprise you Mm. with our with what we do so i let him know please you know request a day of journey and in fact we're taking care of a like a fun day for him in tokyo the job that the trip designers have is so hard but i created this company so i i can actually help people who ask me for this help better it's just so basic you know out there in the world there's nobody who's doing something that's between a luxury travel agency and do-it-yourself. Sounds so wonderful. Well, I'm interested to know some of your favorite chefs and some of your favorite restaurants in the world, but I'm also very interested in the presence of women in this space, in the food space, and Mm -hmm. what you're seeing around the world. More respect, uh, just more of them, more women who have sort of fought to be seen in the way that you have. What do you think is happening? I think the challenging part about the women conversation is that there's a lot that can be done both one-on-one, like in terms of catching yourself and your own un- unconscious biases. There's a lot to be done in terms of policies, both governmental and co- corporate or even um, I-, I run a startup. So it just among teams and among companies. But really the the crux of it, I see as well in, let's say, like my own dating life, which is like in, in when it's like when we're on a bell curve, and most families are helmed by a heteronormative man and woman couple and women essentially have to take one to two years off-ish, like genuinely in order to pop a human baby out of <laughs> between our, from between our legs. Men and women are just not the same. Men and women are the same just the same way as like polka dots and stripes aren't the same or that left brain and right brained people aren't the same. So diversity goes deeper than whether you're a man or woman or what you look like or your sexual orientation. But certainly all of these labels are shortcuts to expressing and categorizing how people are different. So until the day that men can further our species by (laughs) literally creating life from inside of you, We're not the same. So that makes the conversation more complicated. It becomes 
more about how these organizations, both in ethos, in policy, in the leadership, in the way people treat each other with mm. kindness and respect, how and, and by the way, communication and clarity, how organizations and people empower women to be women and for men to be men. Well, uh, I really loved what you said before, even other. going back to the idea of cultural or culinary appropriation, which is really a hotbed topic for me. But the idea of instead of appropriation, appreciation. And I also, in relation to what you're saying about men and women, you know, rather than kind of strive for the sameness is kind of an appreciation of our differences. And I think the world would be a much better place, but a real appreciation and really seeing seeing the other. But that said, lately, tell me about some of your favorite chefs and restaurants and just recently in your travels. I'm, I'm sure it's hard to keep it all straight because you're this beautiful butterfly. So the chefs that I love, I've been loving this kind of, by the way, chef relationship. Mm. So I've noticed something I've been loving, which is that the the men who've started restaurant groups they have empowered specific women within the organizations to take on whole parts of the business and be be the head chefs and the personalities themselves. So for instance, Enrique Olvera brought his magic over from Mexico City. So he has Pujol there. And then well, about five years ago, he brought Cosme over and and soon enough, Daniela Soto Inez, who by then fabulous. nobody knew her. Now she's been awarded world's best female chef, the youngest person to be awarded that title, which has its own controversy. Because why do you need a world's best female chef? You don't have a world's best male chef. But that's a whole nother conversation. The point is, what's important here is that Enrique... Because he knows what's good for him, he's made the space for someone within his team to grow big. I love that she's getting press. I love that she's a darling. And then mm. similarly in David Chang's world, he's the boss. He's the guy who started the whole Momofuku empire. He's got his podcast. He's got his shows. But then he's also got Yunjo Park at the helm at Kawi, where I was just at for lunch. <laughs> and he, let's not forget Christina Tosi, who's got her own books and shows and her whole own milk bar empire. She grew up in the David Chang world. I want to see more of that. Men championing women and women championing women. That's what we need more of. Leti, this has really been a, an extraordinary pleasure for me. And I'm going to end our time together with a question that I ask everyone who comes on the show. What does one woman kitchen mean to you? For me, it's very visual. <sighs> I see myself in that kitchen swirling around, <laughs> simmering magic. I see sparkles and I see colors and I see love and I see living an epic life, getting to do what you love and make money doing it and make money for the people in our industry, like meaning create opportunity for all of us to together get to do what we love. Like it means that no one's going to keep promises to you if you're not keeping promises to yourself. You're like this one woman who needs to be multidisciplinary and multi-talented and multitasking. And that's why, Women in kitchens 
are so powerful. And it might be the real kitchen, it might be the, the figurative kitchen, but I can tell you that my kitchen looks like a lot of fun. And while we're swirling around, we're swirling wine and we're drinking and dancing and cooking and eating all at the same time. Remember how cool I said you were? Yes. <laughs> That's very cool and also very beautiful. Thank you. So visual. It's really a luscious, luscious conversation. Thank you for having me. Leite, how do people get in touch with you? I'm sure everyone's going to want to see your Instagram and, and take a journey with you. Yes. So uh, my Instagram is at Leite Sue, L-E-I-T-I-H-S-U. You can just follow me, message me. I, I, do, I do answer my messages. And journey is at Go Journey, G-O-J-O-U-R-N-Y. That's journey without the E. And then you can just email me at Leite at GoJourney.com, G-O-J-O-U-R-N-Y.com. So do connect, and thank you so much. Thank you, Leite, and thank you for being with me today. And thanks to all of you for being with me and Leite in my kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold, and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.